Thus far, the commandments have been stated in the negative. You shall not. You shall not. You shall not. And for the sensitive among us, that can be a bit distressing. But those prohibitions are like chunks the sculptor chips away in order to reveal the sculpture within the marble. The useless bits have to go. God hewns out and chisels away our idolatry and hypocrisy, and what's left is the Sabbath, a day of rest and rejoicing. The argument could be made, and indeed has been made, that this commandment is the culmination and center of all the commandments, the Sabbath peak to which the other commandments lead. And it does seem that way if we consider sheer volume any indicator. The fourth commandment, among all others, receives the most space and detail. And moreover, it's mentioned more than any other commandment in the rest of Scripture. It seems, whatever the commandment is about, that it occupies a central place. And to our ears, that sounds strange. The church has argued for centuries that Sabbath observance is the one commandment that no longer applies to us. It was part of the ceremonial law that has been abrogated in the event, or rather the advent of Christ. And for my sake, I wish it were that simple. I could write this commandment off and get to more pressing matters. It seems I should be talking about work ethic and industry rather than rest, given the ever-diminishing labor force in these COVID times. But in the scriptures, I found the Sabbath something utterly deserving of more attention. It's true that the Sabbath commandment does not apply to the church in the manner it did to Israel, but that hardly means it can be passed over. So, being therefore that this commandment is so distant from our experience and imagination, I want to explore its meaning in some detail. The better we understand its meaning under the Old Covenant, the better we can understand its meaning for us in the New. Our approach, then, won't be so much to elaborate on the particulars of the commandment, as it will be to capture its spirit. We will come to the heart of the old covenant legislation and then set it in relation to Christ. So, the obvious place to begin is with the commandment itself. In Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, it reads as follows. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor And do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you, for in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. 
Now, without getting into the particulars, we need to understand the grounding that is given to the commandments. The entire nation, not only the people, but also the animals, and even the land, is to rest on the Sabbath, because the commandment reads, the Lord made the heavens and the earth and rested on the seventh day. So the Sabbath is not rooted in human obligation or even in the covenant, but God's action in eternity and creation. The commandment then directs us to the beginning. Genesis chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 read as follows. Thus, heaven, the heavens and earth were completed and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it because in it he rested from all his works which God had created and made. So, among all the days of the creation narrative, the seventh day is unique. It stands out from the rest. Now, the other six days correspond to one another. The first day to the fourth, the second day to the fifth, and the third day to the sixth. Now, on the first day, God creates light and separates it from darkness. On the fourth day, he creates lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. On the second day, he made the expanse by separating the waters from the waters. On the fifth day, he populated the expanse with birds and the waters with fish. On the third day, he caused dry land to appear and furnished it with every kind of vegetation. And on the sixth day, he made the beasts and the cattle, and lastly, man, to inhabit the dry land. So the seventh day obviously stands outside the neat correspondence between the other days. It does not fit into the creation pattern, but is its completion. Philo called the seventh day, the Sabbath, the birthday of the world. It's the culmination of the entire week, the last day, but the first day. In other words, things have been building to a pitch when God would bless and sanctify the seventh day and ultimately rest from his works. The seventh day is also designated from the rest in that it's depicted as having no end. After God's creative work each day, the refrain is this, and there was evening and morning. The pattern continues from the first day to the sixth, but abruptly stops on the seventh. As it happens, there is evening and morning on days one, two, and three, when the sun and the moon haven't even been created yet. So the seventh day is obviously unique. It's depicted as an eternal day. Each day comes to a neat close, and there was evening, and there was morning. But this day, 
the holy day, continues on perpetually. Now, if you hold to a literal seven-day creation, this doesn't have to upset your understanding. One can very well affirm the seventh day as a literal day and simultaneously maintain its symbolic value. But nevertheless, that is where the meaning lies. Having no end, the seventh day represents the goal of creation. God made the heavens and the earth to share in his rest. Such was to be its perpetual state. But this raises an obvious question. What is this rest? At least in the creation account, it is the divine rest and not the human rest that is emphasized. God rested on the seventh day, yes, but not due to any weariness or fatigue on his part. The scriptures say, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 28, Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. Such a possibility is excluded. But our very human word, rest, isn't entirely useless. The scriptures use that word for a reason. Consider what images the word rest conjures in our minds. Peace, refreshment, stillness contentment. God has nothing to rest from because he is rest. His very existence and infinite plenitude of uninterrupted peace and bliss and serenity. And as the New Testament epistle of Hebrews will later tell us, it is this eternal rest of God that he invites us into. Or as Augustine says, we are to become rest in him. God is rest, and he invites us to share in it. There is, however, more to this concept of rest. In the fourth commandment, the word used is menua, and it means either rest or resting place. And that latter meaning opens up new interpretive pathways for us. It's the same word, and not coincidentally, I think, that is used to speak of the Lord's presence in the temple. Psalm 132, verses 8 and 9, and then verses 13 and 14 read as follows. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, Manuah, you and the ark of your strength, Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and your godly ones sing for joy. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his habitation. This is my resting place, Manuah, forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. So the temple, and more specifically the ark, are portrayed here as the Lord's resting place on earth. And I think, given that the commandment and Psalm 132 use the same exact word, 
we are to understand something similar coming to pass on the seventh day. The Lord has completed his work and comes to dwell and settle in the cosmic temple that he has made. Such is his rest. For that reason, the scripture says that he sanctified the seventh day. He made it a holy day. But what makes something holy? What qualifies anything, let alone a day, to be holy? Now, speaking of the temple, the Lord says in Exodus 29, 43, I will meet there with the sons of Israel, and it shall be consecrated by my glory. It is proximity to God that makes a thing holy. And it is the seventh day's proximity to God, his rest in it, that makes it a holy day. Abraham Heschel, a Jewish theologian, puts it this way. The Sabbath is to time what the temple and tabernacle are to space. The Sabbath is a cathedral in time. On the seventh day, we experience in time what the tabernacle and the temple represented as as spaces, which is eternal life. God in the complete creation. So the Sabbath without morning or evening is the eternal day on which God grants his presence to the created order. In other words, it is the goal and point of creation. He comes near and blesses it and sanctifies it. God's eternal presence dwells with man in time. And it was for this purpose, peace and rest, that God made the world. Now with that, at least a cursory understanding of the Sabbath, we can return to the words of the commandment. Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. The Sabbath practice was instituted as a remembrance of God's rest. It looks back, in other words, to the way things were intended to be. In the midst of man's labors, toiling and striving to cultivate not only the land, but his own fallen nature, he is to memorialize, to remember the seventh day. That is, to hearken back to a more original condition, one of divine rest. And this reminds man that his labors are at best secondary and contingent. The real thing, that which is actually productive and fruitful, is the divine work and not the human. Before man even begins to work, God invites him to rest. Karl Barth, in his Church Dogmatics, puts it as follows, The first divine action which man is allowed to witness is that God rested on the seventh day and blessed and hallowed it. And the first word said to him, the first obligation brought to his notice, is that without any works or merits, he himself may rest with God 
and then go to his work. So we are brought into a world where rest is the fundamental reality. Our burdens and toil are not inherent, simply the way things are, but aberrations and intrusions upon the good created order. Now we are, make no mistake, commissioned to work, appointed to abound in our vocation, but in all our works, the Sabbath teaches us to remember one thing. The real work has already been completed. Our first work is, in truth, to not work at all. Thus, the seventh day interrupts our labors in order to remind us our place. It is God who makes the world go round and not us. The psalmist in the Sabbath spirit proclaims, Psalm 127, verses 1 and 2, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchmen keep awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors. For he gives his beloved, he gives to his beloved, even in his sleep. So, our first day, the seventh day, is a day of grace. It is grace because the work is already finished. The seventh day calls us away from everything that we can, will, and achieve and back to what God is for us and will do for us. And to commemorate our first day, we're commanded to do nothing. The Hebrew word for Sabbath is Shabbat, and it means to cease or to desist. The fourth commandment appears like idleness. Indeed, through the ages, it has attracted such condemnations, but it's simply the appropriate response to completion, to grace. And as the day of grace, the seventh day is thus good news. It's good news that what? God does not need us. And what relief that good news is. We are not like Atlas in Greek mythology, never resting, never ceasing, but ever bearing the world upon our shoulders. It's vain, the psalmist says, to rise up early to reti- and to retire late. An almost anti-God mindset. Instead, God says to all control freaks and workaholics alike, chill out. Psalm 121, verses 1 through 4, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will never sleep nor slumber. God is ever at work, yet ever at rest. Always active, yet always in repose. He keeps us, not we him. And thus, the Sabbath is most fundamentally a day of trust. God bids man to put away his striving and labors and to trust him. 
to provide for him every good thing. Rest a little. Put up your feet. Everything is going to be fine. Perfect rest springs from perfect trust. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 15, For thus the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, In repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. So the Sabbath day, on it, we formally recognize our creatureliness by putting away our work and toil. We dethrone our pretensions to be at the center of things and celebrate that our Father in heaven has promised to give us this day our daily bread while we do nothing. Like Israel, patiently waiting for manna to rain down from above. So, Sabbath practice looks backward, but it also looks forward. It remembers the seventh day that our rest was shattered by sin and thus anticipates its renewal. Israel's Sabbath practices were something of an eschatological, that is, end times preview. It anticipated the end and thus spread out from Israel's seventh day to fill, rather, every nook and cranny of Israel's life. Indentured servants were held six years but released on the seventh, their debt canceled by the Lord. It was not allowed to become a permanent burden, locking entire generations into cycles of poverty. And the land, too. It was worked and cultivated for six years, but given rest on the seventh. On the Sabbath year, virtually all the nation's economic life came to a standstill. This, indeed, made it less productive economically, but the bottom line was not the shekel, but obedience. God anticipates any objection. Exodus, or rather Leviticus 25, verses 20 and 22, the Lord says, But if you say, what are we going to eat on the seventh year if we do not sow or gather in our crops? Then I will so order my blessing for you in the sixth year that it will bring forth the crop for three years. When you are sowing the eighth year, you can still eat old things from the crop, eating the old until the ninth year when its crop comes in. So in obedience to the command, God promised to bless the land. In a sense, repealing the curse upon it that had made it unproductive and instead restores it to its Edenic fruitfulness in anticipation of the age to come. The sixth year would produce such an abundance that it would provide for the seventh year and the eighth year while they wait for the new crop. And as remarkable and as humanitarian as these laws are, they pale in comparison to the great Sabbath, the year of Jubilee. On the 50th year, a cycle of seven sevens, a Jubilee was celebrated. Not only were all debts released, 
but all property was returned to its original owners. The rich were not allowed to continually amass land and wealth, pushing the poor further and further to the margins of society. Instead, on the great Sabbath, each family had a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to start afresh. On the seventh day, on the seventh year, on the Jubilee, everything was restored to its Edenic beginning. The Sabbath anticipates, one scholar said, a society free of domination, a foretaste of the city to come. On the Sabbath, there are no masters and no servants. There is only the freedom of all the children of God and creation's release from anxiety. It's a hint at a greater Sabbath to come. Now, there's no evidence that the nation ever practiced a jubilee year, which is inexcusable yet understandable given how radical these laws were. But there is in some sense, or some evidence rather, that they did practice a seven-year Sabbath. But that's beside the point. God's intention in this legislation is clear. His people, this nation, were to be a sign of contradiction to the nations, pointing towards something greater to come. Their Sabbath practices were to be so strange, so utopian, so impractical, that the nations had to take notice. Their testimony interrupted the status quo. Greed, injustice, poverty. These are not the way things are. The true nature of things is made manifest, not on the six days of man's work, but on the Sabbath and its subsequent legislation. Not domination, but rest. Not competition, but mutuality. Not scarcity, but abundance. It anticipated the promise of restoration. And that Sabbath restoration, as every other commandment and indeed the entirety of the scriptures, finds its fulfillment and reality in Jesus Christ. He is the seventh day. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17 read as follows. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink, or in respect to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The Sabbath and all its accompanying legislation never was the substance, the thing itself. But in all its concreteness, it was still a shadow. It pointed forward. That was its role. Toward the cosmic jubilee. Rest and liberation and freedom, not only for Israel, but for the entire cosmos. Think Romans 8. And rest, not only from economic and work-related burdens, those being mere shadows too, but spiritual burdens, the real substance of humanity's slavery. Greater pharaohs, principalities and powers, dominions and authorities, and even the evil one himself must be crushed 
before there can be Sabbath rest. Now, according to St. John, Christ dies on the sixth day, Friday. And his last words are, it is finished. Now, it's impossible in those two details not to be driven back to the creation narrative. On the sixth day, Friday, God finished his work and declared it very good. And on the seventh day, the Sabbath, the last day of the week, he rested from all his works. Christ, too, rested from all his works. And that on the Sabbath. Before sundown, he was removed from the cross, prepared for burial, and laid to rest in a tomb. His work was finished. He had borne all humanity's burdens, and therefore he observed his own Sabbath rest, and our burdens rested with him. But then the apostle is anxious to note, on the next day, the first day of the week, Jesus is raised from the dead. And it was this, his burden-bearing work, and his complete rest and resurrection that the Sabbath pointed to. The substance belongs to Christ. He is our Sabbath rest. He is the one who gives us freedom from our burdens and bids us do nothing. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all you who are weary, and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. So just like our creation, brought into the world to rest, our work a secondary thing, so it is in our new creation. The first And last word of not only our birth, but also our rebirth is rest. It is ours, and therefore we must strive to enter in it, as the scripture says. But remember, we're not striving to earn rest, but to enter it. It has been earned by Christ, and we enter in it through trust and quietness. If we can but still ourselves, quieting our anxieties and fears and restlessness, we will find that peace which surpasses all understanding is not far. An inexhaustible divine rest lies at the heart of things, but only faith can reach it. Now that is our present But our Sabbath lies ahead, too. Do you remember the curious detail about the seventh day? It had no evening or morning. It simply was. One wonders where the sun and moon had went. It's as if they weren't needed. In the divine rest and creation's participation in it, there's no need for created light, it seems. The entire cosmos is brightened with the splendor and majesty of God. Now, curiously, that same detail 
is recorded at the end as well as the beginning. Revelation chapter 21, a few verses from that chapter read as follows. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God and for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Listen, and the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its light lamp is the Lamb. The seventh day rest, that for which God created the entire universe, is inaugurated in Christ and brought to perfection as the heavenly city descends upon the earth. Like the Sabbath day, without evening or morning, so the heavenly city needs neither sun nor moon to shine upon it. The glory of God and the light of the Lamb are its illumination. The day of rest extends into eternity, with no sun to announce it, nor moon to mark its end. It is everlasting, unceasing peace with God and man, the Sabbath. And it's that Sabbath that lies before us. God has opened a door in the gospel of his dear son, that in it, that through it, we might share in his rest. Unspeakable bliss and peace, infinitely deep, infinitely vast. Such rest is shared now, but incompletely, under the conditions of sin. But then, there will be no labors to keep us from our rest. Not our sin, it will be gone. Not our bodies, they will be glorified. Nor our hearts, they will be purified. As Augustine says, on that day, we shall rest and see. See in love, love and praise. For this is to be the end without the end of all our living, the kingdom without end, the real goal of our present life. God's rest awaits us. Let us strive to enter in it. Let's pray.